Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by my friend Pete Spiliakos for another discussion in our PomoCon series where we reflect on public culture, on politics, on the troubles we are dealing with in a very troubling time. Pete, thanks for joining me again. So let's talk elites and madness in America. Well, good. Now, I mean, that's good to see you again, Titus. I'm good to talk to you. One of the things I want to talk about was the reaction to Trump. There's an intense rage, and especially among the affluent center-left, that strikes me as being not just irrational, but also infantile. They act out their feelings, and then they're shocked that there's a reaction to it. I think the classic example from the last couple of years would be Mark Tushnet's article on bin balkanization where basically said that, you know, Scalia's dead, now we're going to have a, whether it's Obama who appoints a fifth liberal justice, or whether Hillary Clinton wins the election, and she appoints a fifth liberal justice, then, and he used the metaphor, we'll be living in an occupied America. And he, you know, mentioned Reconstruction, but he also mentioned post-World War II, where basically, once we win, you will be hunted down like Nazis. And then the same people who, I mean, Mark Tushnet is not one guy, but in this case, I think he was the id of a lot of affluent white liberals. This was the dream where we'll get what we want and we'll be able to use the courts to destroy anybody who gets in our way. And then they're shocked when Mitch McConnell blocks Obama's judge. They're angry. And it's not just the anger of someone who didn't get what they want. It was the anger of someone who is shocked that the people you want to crush are resisting at all. This strikes me as being not just mistaken, not just bad, but it's infantile. It's that when you smack somebody and then when you smack them back, you look around for a teacher to tell on them. Teacher, teacher, he hit me back. Well, did you hit him first? Yeah, but I was hitting up. He was hitting down. And it's like, what did you expect? It's one thing to stoically say there's not going to be any civility. We're going to hit each other any way that we can, any time that we can, and I accept this. But to expect asymmetric civility, where on the one hand you demonize your opposition as evil, and then you affect shock that they don't follow rules that you have exempted yourself from, you would expect more self-knowledge from children. I mean, I have a four-year-old, I would expect better from her. If you explain it to her, she would understand what she did wrong, whereas to them it's, yes, but I'm right. And therefore, I am licensed to do these things. And you are at the same time are bound by rules that I simultaneously say don't apply to me. And then they're shocked. And it's one of those things where they keep creating escalations, and yet they seem to be genuinely surprised when there are counter-escalations. There's not even a stoicism to it. It's like, okay, I understand that if I punch, they're going to kick but what we gain from punching is greater than what we're going to lose from being kicked. It's like, I punch, and then they kicked, and it's like, wait a minute, how could this happen? How could this be? I, I'm almost surprised as to what in someone's background would lead them to be surprised by these escalations and these counter-escalations. And it's the sincerity that gets me. It's not so much the anger. You can understand why, why you might be angry. It's the bafflement that people are actually responding perfectly rationally to your provocations. Yeah. We're in a situation where we try to combine at elite level power and morality in a way that will never work. If we say politics is now about power because we want progress, it is no longer tolerable to have the old America that was unjust. We're going to need a new America where justice is done and it's long overdue and so we'll get it in whatever way we can. That's power. But then, because our opinion is so moral, progressive then we can exempt ourselves from thinking, okay, what will our adversaries do? You can be realistic about saying, you know, win by any means, but we can't be realistic when it comes to saying, how will people react to this? 
What happens when you tell people that you're looking forward to getting rid of these white identity evil people who turn out to be half the nation? It's not a few assholes. Everybody's a racist. And that's not workable politically. If these people were conniving Machiavellis, they would be lying about their intentions. They wouldn't be broadcasting that. From now on, the rules will be different and they'll be treating everybody else as unjust and therefore deserving of punishment in need of re-education, in need of penitence. This style of politics where you get to rule them without their consent, because previously other Americans had been ruled without their consent in the injustices of slavery and any other oppression that's happened in American history, this sort of tit-for-tat justification is nutty politics. You don't tell your people that, okay, we'll be oppressing the other half of the people and then expect the other half of the people not to hear about it and not to react to it when once it becomes obvious that, oh, all of a sudden, in a court of law, somebody changed what marriage means. We thought this was somehow settled. No, it was taken like that. Then, okay, it turns out that the stakes of the game are very, very serious and immediate. Things are happening that can change politics and life in America, presumably overnight when you weren't paying attention and you never thought that this was something that could change, that this was something risky, maybe in need of defense. And then, of course, for that offensive tit on the conservative side and just broadly speaking, who's not progressive has some stake in, okay, we need that, we need revenge for this. And this is essentially the logic of our partisanship. Besides the issues of are we going to keep traditions going or are we going to fight for progress by any means, the question is tit for tat. They did something bad to us, we will do something bad in return. And nobody ever thinks that there will be another one in return after that. There's not just tit and tat. It doesn't stop there like the plot does in a movie where at the end the good guy beats the bad guy who had beaten him before. That's not how life works. And of course, our politics is no longer in a situation where we think, deal with it, this is life. You're going to have to live with half the nation tomorrow too. However hysterical you get about an election, you're going to have to live with half the nation next year too. We can't do that anymore. And so instead, we end up with this crazy, crazy situation where the people who want to do the harshest political things because they think they're justified by past oppression are the ones who are most moralistic about they should never be paying any price for this. And the right-wing version of that is the Flight 92 election, or the one by Decius. I had a lot of problems with Decius. But at the bottom, Decius's argument is that if Hillary Clinton's president were doomed, if Donald Trump's president is were maybe doomed. Except that's not really an argument for the 2016 election. Because then there's 2020, and then there's 2024, then there's 2028. You know, that's not an argument for Donald Trump. That's an argument for Francisco Franco. That's not an argument for winning an election. It's an argument for canceling an election. Because if in those are the stakes of an election, you can't have a democracy under those terms. Part of it is they didn't follow the logic of it enough. Yep. But part of it is you can't have anything like moderation unless both sides are willing to dial back the stakes. On the other hand, you have, I think the rage is far more on the white affluent left. That, you know, any kind of moderation is a compromised absolute evil. Even if the absolute evil that you're raging against is yourself three or four or five years ago. In other words, a lot of things that they're talking about as being absolute evil and unacceptable, and you should be willing to do anything to root it out, they're not arguing against Hitler. They're arguing against the versions of themselves from five or six years ago because there is a drift of opinion, and they're not able to have a sense of proportion about themselves. 
or a sense that, you know, the moralistic version of you right now might not be the final version of you. And the fact that the climate of political opinion within your peer group has shifted should actually encourage you to be a little more humble, not to be a little bit more moralistic. In other words, be a little bit more understanding to try to achieve incremental gains by a little more consensus rather than by conflict. But actually, I think on some level, the memory of their old versions themselves makes them more angry because when they see their opponents, they see a version of themselves that they would like to forget, that they would like to obliterate, and they project this desire for self-obliteration onto their political opponents. It's kind of self-defeating. It takes people who might have been your allies and turns them into your enemies, and it takes people who might not have actually been all that engaged. They might have turned passive opposition into bitter, extreme opposition. But on one level, we're talking about emotional dynamics rather than pragmatic achievement. Yeah, and we don't know how to run politics. Nobody knows how to run the government. Nobody knows how to deliver on whatever they think is the core wants of their constituency. And this aggravates everything, because if you can't have achievements, you can certainly have reckonings. If you can't have a future, you can certainly relitigate the past. And it's also, of course, very attractive, this sort of moralistic politics where you're violently convinced that people you disagree with are racist Nazis. It's very attractive because it solidifies opinion. People can rally behind this. You can't have a rally behind the proposition that these other guys are unpleasant and they think they're wrong. Now, if they're evil personified, if it's an occasion for hysteria, that's as good a solidifier of opinion and catalyst to bring people together who have common enemies as anything, better than enthusiasm. And it's also very useful for political advancement. To a large extent, progress means that younger progressives can dislodge middle-aged or older progressives from positions of influence or authority. And of course, it's hard to disagree because boomers seem to have a stranglehold on influence and power in America and they're never going to let go. So somehow, as an intra-party struggle, it makes sense to make a claim for progressive justice over against older liberals or the revolutionaries of two generations ago who are entrenched now because there's no other advancement for you. There's no way to get a future. There's no way to get something for yourself. Both the national incompetence when it comes to politics and the partisan desire for advancement lead to hysteria in progressives achieving things it hasn't achieved since the late 60s. Well, status anxiety, I think, plays a huge role in it. There's a lot of affluent white liberals, or if not necessarily affluent, there's kind of a lump in intelligentsia of people who wanted to go into journalism and academia, but there wasn't a spot for them. So now they're semi-employed and they're resentful. They're affluent white liberals, or they're white liberals who came from affluent families and had dreams of power and status that were not realized. And they see themselves as a vanguard elite that's going to create a more just society. But as Kevin Williamson often points out, these are elite whites whose ambition is to lead a party whose actual electorate is darker skinned and less affluent. This creates an internal conflict. You want equality, but you don't want too much equality. You want egalitarianism, but you want egalitarianism for everybody but you. And the way that they can justify their existence is that while they're not going to transfer their own status, they're not going to transfer their own power, they are willing to transfer somebody else's status and power to their constituents. In other words, if you're a liberal journalist at the Washington Post, we're not going to take away your status, but we are going to tell a waitress in rural Pennsylvania to check her privilege. 
it was actually on Twitter. There was a story on the Washington Post about a white couple that's working in a chicken processing factory. And, you know, they weren't happy about it. And she says, imagine having every advantage in life. Imagine having every privilege and still not being happy. If you had scripted it, it would have been too absurd for reality. In other words, to have a liberal journalist write that, you would know that's too on the nose. It's too stereotypical. But the one who wrote it, she was expressing an actual anxiety. She had to prove her. She had to stand up against these low-status whites because the way she justifies her own position is redistributing status from these low-status whites to the other relatively less affluent people within her own coalition. She needs to create this division in order to justify her own position, which is one of the reasons why you never saw Barack Obama do this. You never saw Barack Obama take purposeful pot shots at low-status white workers because, one, he wanted their votes, but two, he didn't feel this set of internal conflicts. He didn't need to establish himself as being a tribune of blacks and Latinos because he already had credibility. So when, you know, Barack Obama says, you know, you shouldn't dismiss people because they're white males, there's a lot of people who feel like they have to do this in order to establish their own position. If Hillary Clinton says, you know, maybe you should listen to white males, there is a bunch of ambitious white Democrats who are going to opportunistically take her saying that to say, ah, she's a phony rich white person, because there is something really phony about Hillary Clinton's positioning. Because it's not like Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt was a rich guy who was acting as the tribune of a less affluent electorate. But Franklin Roosevelt wasn't enriching himself by acting as the tribune. He was wealthy and he stayed wealthy. Whereas Hillary Clinton didn't start off wealthy. She became wealthy, affecting to act as a tribune of less wealthy populations. On one level for her, this is a scam. She has to be really careful, otherwise a lot of people who would like to be where she is are going to opportunistically point out that she's a profiteer of social division. She is a profiteer of white privilege, and what she is doing is actually extending her own white privilege. Yeah, that's a very good point. As I said, this is an intra-party fight, and that's because a lot of people who want stuff don't have any influence or public offices or authority or money, and they're on the make. It's the American dream, doing well by doing good. Progress is going to be profitable for you personally. But it's also deeply dishonest for the same reason. If you want to be a con man in America, first of all, you have to con yourself. If you want to sell others on your ideas, first of all, you want to sell yourself. And as you say, this will keep coming back. It's not good enough to complain that all these old white rich people dominate the Democrat Party. Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, there used to be Harry Reid, there still is Nancy Pelosi, all these old white boomers or even olders who are way richer than the people whose votes they want and whom they claim to represent. And it's not going to be enough to give these jobs to 40-year-old white people, mostly men. Why not give these jobs to 40 or 30-year-old people of color? Let black people, Latinos, Asians, let them represent their own coalition not have these rich, super-educated, ambitious white people do it for them. This is somehow the principle of progress in the Democratic Party, but it's never the practice. It's intolerable, apparently, to have politicians represent their own communities, even though group rights and group representation are the principle of the Democrat Party. Most of us know political commentary is pretty lousy, but they actually had a really good skit. It was about election night. And it's basically Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock with a bunch of their white affluent liberal friends as their friends slowly psychologically disintegrate as it becomes clear that Donald Trump is going to be president. And Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock are, they're not really all that surprised because they have a tragic sensibility, whereas their white friends don't. There's one especially great moment in the scene where they think they're going to win Florida 
and the white liberals say to Latinos. And Dave Chappelle has got a look of surprise and disgust. Dave Chappelle understands this, for these affluent white liberals, these Florida Latino voters don't exist as human beings. They exist as cannon fodder for the empowerment of affluent white liberals. They're not really happy that these Latinos are in Florida. They're not even happy that these Latinos are voting. They're happy about how these Latinos are voting and that these same white liberals, if those Latinos were voting the way that Cuban-Americans were voting in Florida in the 1980s, there would be no toast. Because at the end of the day, these voters for these affluent white liberals, gentry liberals, these voters only exist as a means to their own empowerment within society. So when Trump wins Florida, Dave Chappelle sarcastically says, I guess those Latinos must not have heard about the toast. But it's actually a great moment about the relationship between gentry liberals and their idea of the non-white electorate. To a large extent, if the non-white electorate was voting for Ted Cruz, they would lose a lot of their enthusiasm for the non-white electorate. There's this confidence among gentry liberals that they will be able to consistently steer this electorate towards gentry liberal goals. And from the gentry liberal perspective, this is the social contract. You like me better, but at the same time, I set the terms. The entire SNL skit is that this social contract, these expectations only exist in the head of these people who are not simply more privileged than the electorate they seek to lead. They're more privileged than the average American. They're more privileged than the vast majority of their opponents who they condemn for white privilege. And there's something deeply absurd about this situation. Yeah, this is what's both insane and hilarious about our situation. Liberals are now caught in a trap of entitlement. They thought they had 2016 in the bag that liberals were going to be in power permanently in America. This is, again, to go back to the racial and class divide within the Democrat Party, the idea of an ascendant coalition of the minorities. Open borders are going to lead to immigration from third world countries, people who aren't white at any rate, and certainly won't be voting Republican. And so Democrats, by giving these people refuge in America and the party in America, will be getting their votes presumably in perpetuity. This will happen by demographic shift automatically. You don't have to do politics for it. It'll just happen and you'll win by it. It's right because all these other people of color who are poor are going to do a bit better, maybe a lot better, some. And it's even better because the white liberals are going to rule them. We do not have any evidence electorally or from polls that vast majorities of the various Latino ethnicities in America or blacks in America are super excited about abortion or illegal immigration. But the elites of the Democratic Party are super excited about those things to the extent that it is inconceivable to be a candidate in the modern Democratic Party and disagree. And as you said, it's a case where the liberal elites set the terms of the social contract. They create the expectations, they decide the policies. And in return, I suppose the poor people are supposed to be grateful because of open borders and because of redistribution programs in the welfare state. Or I guess for Obamacare, be grateful for that and let the liberal elites redefine anything. Nobody's going to ask poor Americans of any color or ethnicity what they think about homosexual marriage. It is sacred to liberal elites and so it must become the law and be defended. And this is a really insane way to do politics, but it's an especially insane way to do politics when you claim to represent communities at the closest level and to be men of the people, protectors and aides to the people. Liberals have rediscovered again Emma Lazarus and the sonnet about the Statue of Liberty. 
give us your poor, your wretched. Turns out that liberals want them to be nannies, landscapers. That's what they think liberty in the new world means for the lower classes. Only Bernie Sanders has tried to some extent at least to say, well, poor people should have a way of life that's dignified for them. Nobody else in the Democrat Party seems to care much about what happens to lower class Americans. Well, Barack Obama printed towards that. You never heard Barack Obama say anything like deplorables. You saw him try to psychoanalyze wage earning whites, but you never actually saw him demonize them. But that's because Barack Obama's status within the party on demographic terms was not as suspect as it is of what Kevin Williamson called him, the nice white lady, leadership of a party that's becoming less and less white. We're talking about people who came from affluent, Hillary Clinton actually come from a super affluent background, but people who are rich now, who are claiming to lead a population that they don't actually represent, either in demographic terms or in class terms, and it creates certain tensions, whereas Barack Obama was subject to those tensions. Barack Obama had thought about how he could lead the largest possible coalition, and as a result of that, he was actually able to win a much larger share of the population. Hillary Clinton. Now, favorable circumstances has something to do with it, but you can look at the voting in Bucks County, and you can see that Barack Obama in both 2008 and 2012 was able to get either the support or the acquiescence of people that positively hated the Democratic Party in 2016. There's something to be learned about how he did it, and Barack Obama actually said, listen, I showed up in places where I knew I wasn't going to get 60% of the vote, but by showing up there, I got 40% of the vote instead of 20% of the vote, and all those votes count the same. And I think within among white journalistic elites, there's a certain tendency that goes, okay, he didn't demonize whites. What did Barack Obama get for that? You know what he got? Birtherism. He got Donald Trump saying that he was born in Kenya. So what was his reward? You know what his reward was? Two terms as president. Yeah, that's not bad. And the thing is, when they're using birtherism as a reason to write off what would otherwise be persuadable voters, by the way, voters that Republicans despise, those Obama-Trump voters in Bucks County, it was the reason why Republicans were losing them in 2008 and 2012. Okay, 2008, you talk about extreme circumstances. It was a bad environment for Republicans. The reason they wrote them in 2012 is that Republican politicians despise those voters, just as much as Hillary Clinton does, just on different grounds. But the reason they use birtherism as a reason to write off these voters is Democratic elites, they never liked these voters in the first place. The thing is, they can't wait for these voters to become expendable. They can't wait for these voters to die. Every heroin death in Bucks County is a cause for celebration for them. They would rather be in a smaller coalition that excludes these voters than be in a larger coalition that includes them. Now, Barack Obama doesn't have these hangups. He didn't actually see it that way. But there's a lot of people, especially journalistic elites, whose peer group or other journalistic elites, they posture. Yeah, I'd be glad to lose them. Cynthia Nixon, who's running against Andrew Cuomo in New York, they're basically, she said, what about the working class? He goes, well, the working class is different now. The working class is now brown. The working class is black. We don't actually have to worry about the white working class. And it turns out the opinion polls, the group she's doing best with is whites. You know, African-Americans, Latinos are overwhelmingly Cuomo because her vision of this rich, nice white lady leading this black and brown coalition to overthrow the political establishment, that's a liberal white fantasy. That isn't what's going on on the ground. And if they do want a revolution, it's not going to be a rich white lady like Cynthia Nixon. It's going to be somebody else. But this dynamic is poisonous, where you have an affluent white elite of a party that can only justify its status within the party by demonizing the majority of other whites. If there's one theme for Hillary Clinton on the demographic terms, it was, I'm not like the rest. We're one of the good ones. Now, could she have run it differently? Actually, she couldn't. If she had a better character, she would have run a better campaign. But the temptations would have been there regardless. 
And when there's temptation, there's going to be people who succumb to it. And she was one of them. Now, can the Democrats make better decisions? Yeah, I think they can. But part of it comes from recognizing the dynamic where, you know, affluent white liberals have to distinguish themselves by taking shots or distancing themselves rather than trying to form a cross-demographic class coalition of wage earners. They have to position themselves as redistributors of status within the wage earning class in order to justify their own affluent position. Yeah, so if you're a Democrat trying to be a classical Democrat, that is to say to lead a working class alliance against the rich, then in the current circumstances, it's taken for granted that Latinos and blacks vote Democrats, so you'd have to pay attention to the white working class. That's a really bad look if you're a Democrat. It's terrible if you're a progressive Democrat. And this shows that the party is in a real crisis, the easy solution for which would be for all these white people to give up and let the minorities create their own politicians who lead the party. Because the solution for the Democrat party is not race, and certainly not rich whites humiliating poor whites in prime time or in print. The solution would be of a class nature rather than a race nature. It would be to say that poor people in America have a really bad situation and look at Trump's tax cut for the very rich and look at Trump's billionaire cruelty and complain about those kinds of things and try to offer, if not a national, at least nationwide class-based politics where you're going to stand up for the poor, you're going to stand up for the working class, you're going to stand up for the ex-working class in communities where now people are destroyed by drugs. There are so many Americans who experience life as worse than death and so they'll kill themselves with fentanyl. And that's not a position that any Democrat or Republican politician seems to be comfortable with, saying America should be better than death, even if you're poor. It can't be as good as being a pure-hearted, Democrat, progressive, white guy living in affluence, but it shouldn't be hell. If people decide in hundreds of thousands that it's better to be dead than alive in America, there's a big, big, big problem. And that has to be dealt with politically by any party that claims to represent the people. And that's not something that apparently Democrats are at all interested in. And there's also something that's, this is a weird dynamic on both parties. Both parties seem to fetishize narrow victories. Both parties seem to fetishize anathematizing a near majority of the country. And that's just bizarre. You have Barack Obama in 2004, the speech that made him a star. There's no red America and there's no blue America. And then in 2012, you have Romney saying 47% of the country's losers. That's bad math if you need to win the other 53%. You have Hillary Clinton talking about the deplorables in 2016. There's a weird dynamic where politicians are driven to minimize their own electorate in order to demonstrate their own authenticity on some level. And it's just poisonous because there's a politics that we can tell half the country, you might disagree with it, but give it a chance. It's not as bad as you think. And there's another politics where you tell half the country, screw you, you're evil, you'll get what's coming to you. These are actually two very different bases for politics. One is politics as dispute resolution, but at the same time, the stakes are low. And then there's politics as total war. And that's a poisonous dynamic. And both parties are moving in that direction. Both parties are tempted by that. And I kind of wonder what's going on in people's lives. Yeah, I think that you have to look at American society to figure this out. You'd have to see how the Clinton years were a false promise and a false dawn and led to 20 years of fairly catastrophic situations. Massive wars that seem unwinnable, a couple of economic crises that not only wiped out 
a lot of wealth, but they did something worse. Dot-com bubble and its crisis kind of scared people. What if there is no technological future creating growth so that all the boomers can get the return on investment they want for their retirements? And then people reacted in the most insane way by betting the house literally. Now, this is a despairing population that does this. It's not just economic growth, it's a kind of existential guarantee that your old age will not be hell again, that it'll be somehow livable. And uh, at the end of the Clinton years, growth stopped and nobody has figured out how to make the economy grow again. So what exactly is the future for Americans? Meanwhile, the young Americans who are the most hysterical or the most depressed, what is their future? College debt crippling you for life because you can't get out of it. You can get out of marriages in America. You can abandon anything but not college debt. There's a lot of stuff scaring a lot of people. And the thorough line, I think, is where's the future? What future is there for me? What future is there for people in my community? What future is there for people who look like me on TV or in the news? There is no future. And if there's no future, then there's going to be a reckoning. Partly because you have to fight over what's left. And if you can't give the country what people want, you could at least satisfy these other desires. Revenge. People can impose their views of justice on the other people in the most humiliating way conceivable. Politics is clearly not able to solve social problems. It's not able to solve economic problems. It's not able to solve the drug deaths in the country any more than it's able to solve problems with education. For a long time, Americans believed that higher education is the path to a future. You can leap through that portal into the future. It's going to be good. And more and more people went to college. The whole nation is now realizing there's no future there. One of the real class-driven problems is like, I'm sure college debt is a big issue. But the reason people are willing to go into college debt is because if you just look at the tables, being among the college-educated population, the social indicators, the marriage markets, among others, are much less broken there. There have been multiple stories about how Trump supporters tended to be people who have fewer social ties. But they also tended to be people who looked around and saw broken relational institutions. The decline of marriage, increase of single parenthood, rising people were isolated, so the decline of civil society. College education is still a really good bet. Just as a statistical matter, you're much more likely to get married and stay married. Your kids are much less likely to go to prison. And the thing is, people feel it in their guts that there's an abyss under them unless you're in it. And then things like the expectation that you'll be married before your first kid doesn't even really exist. And you see like this almost alien population. These kinds of issues, social policy, neither party has a vocabulary for them. Both parties have elites that are doing okay. And both parties have electorates, large parts, are not doing okay. And the elites don't particularly care. And the mass electorates don't have answers because it's not their job to have answers. And that's really embittering our politics. You look at Wisconsin in 2016. Ted Cruz beat Donald Trump. Wisconsin was the one place where the Republican establishment unified behind an opponent to Trump. The governor, the legislative leadership, the local talk show hosts, they basically said, we need to stop Trump. And they did. Cruz won pretty decisively over Trump in Wisconsin. But if you look at the map, Cruz won in the affluent suburbs. That alone would have been enough to win. He also won highly observant evangelical Christians. But Cruz won among the people who were doing okay. Even the United Republican establishment wasn't enough to help Cruz win among the people who were in relative economic decline. And the Republican Party just doesn't want to face this. 
the Democratic Party has redistributionist answers. And there's at least something to be said for that. But they also have the problem of an elite that, as Rihan Salam pointed out in The Atlantic, there's a line in the Democratic Party between an affluent left-wing elite that's more notionally left-wing than realistically left-wing because they have a lot to lose, and a less affluent electorate that's much less dogmatic than the white affluent elite, but they have a lot more to gain. And that's setting up the party for instability in the future. Maybe something like the instability that rocked the Republican Party in 2016. Yeah. There may be more of this in the offing precisely because, as you put it, the party elite and the electorates are widely, widely separated, both on ideology and economically and morally. Who really believes that the elites in America are on the side of the people, that they're waking up to horror after horror and catastrophe after catastrophe that hits mostly people in classes below them, and they're going to do something about it? This is not a widely told or believed story in America, and for very good reason. And to a large extent, the moral and symbolic issues over which fake wars are fought on Twitter and in the media, these are ways for the elites to justify their abandonment of the people. If the people are bigoted, racist, or don't care enough about social justice, about issues of trans rights, or whatever it is you see on the cover of important liberal papers, well, then maybe those people don't deserve our attention. That's an incredibly callous, but also an incredibly human thing to do to justify abandoning others by declaring them unworthy, or indeed deplorable. Or what you do on on the left is, you know, what did you do during the class war? Well, I suited Baker who wouldn't make a cake. You still have heroin ravaging your actual electorate, but what did you do? You stood up to that Baker. But what did it cost you? That cost you nothing. You feel great now. You've managed to justify your social position, but you actually haven't done any good for anybody in particular. The disaster in family life is not old enough that we can't actually go back 50 years. But if you want to go back 60 years ago, the Kennedy family lived in a bigger house than their Irish-American constituents, but they still had two family houses. Now, the Kennedy family had weird social dynamics, but the political elites and the working class had similar marriage rates, they had similar employment rates, and it was also true across racial and ethnic lines for the most part. Whereas now, we have economic and political elites who live in a different social world than large parts of the electorate. And I suspect that they have trouble imagining what that world is like. And so, on both the left and right, these political elites start political wars to suit themselves rather than to represent their electorates. This creates a very strange situation where you have a lot of symbolic fights and you have an intense bitterness and a lot of resentment. On the Democratic side, you see anxiety among their elites relative to their voters, whereas on the Republican side, you see a lot of resentment by elites relative to their voters, where the Republican elected classes do not comprehend and are terrified of and hate their own voters because their voters aren't being led. Their voters aren't following along and the voters are ignoring them. And that doesn't necessarily mean that these elites should get on the Trump train. And one thing I want to talk about today is why I'm still never Trump. I mean, Trump has surpassed my extremely low expectations for him, but I still can't vote for him in 2020. I'm not going to. Because if I believe, as I do, that Democrats and liberals supporting Bill Clinton's and Ted Kennedy's corrupted politics, I think they did. There were alternatives they should have voted for him. I think accepting what they did from Bill Clinton, rationalizing what Bill Clinton did and supporting him anyway, rationalizing what Ted Kennedy did and supporting him anyway, they corrupted themselves. They even corrupted their opponents. And it should not be acceptable. And all you can do is say no. 
So um, when it comes to Donald Trump, I'm going to vote for somebody else. Can't vote for him because I can't vote for Donald Trump and still believe that liberals were wrong for voting for Jack Kennedy. If you're a conservative and you want to make the hard-boiled, pragmatic case for Donald Trump, then you should be willing to accept the hard-boiled, pragmatic case for Ted Kennedy. He drowned a woman, but he's four Roe versus Wade. That makes him a feminist. He manipulated the state government in order to get out of manslaughter, but he is against death penalty. That makes him for justice. Well, if you're going to put morality aside for Donald Trump, you have to put it aside for Ted Kennedy, too. I'm not going to do that. The willingness of liberals to put ethics aside for Bill Clinton and for Ted Kennedy is one of the reasons why they got Trump. Because when these same people say, how can you vote for him because of the the other Hollywood tape? Didn't you hear? And they're like, yeah, we know Ted Kennedy drowned a woman and you were okay for that. Their answer is usually some variation of one. It was a long time ago. And the conservative response is, we know damn well you will do the same thing now. And the other answer is, that's not something we talk about. No, that's something you don't talk about. In other words, it's like their response is usually some variation of, oh, that again. Yeah, that again. You set the rules. We're going to follow the rules. No, I think this is a mutually corrupting process. And on one level, I think the bitterness and anger of liberals, the election of Trump didn't just corrupt Trump's supporters. It corrupted his opponents. This is a mutually reinforcing process. And the closest you can get to getting it better is to say no. So that's going to be my little thing. I'm going to say no. I'm not giving Gorsuch back. I'm not for impeaching Kavanaugh, but I'm also not going to vote for him. Yeah, one hopes that there is a way ahead out of this crisis for Americans where you've got two parties that are somewhat grounded in electorates and less inclined to bet the end of America on an election. And this notion that Hillary Clinton will kill us all or put us on the way inevitably to that extinction. Or on the other hand, that Donald Trump will do it, of course, excuses just about anything and therefore makes political action incomprehensible, really. You have to have rules by which you play in relation to which you can understand both your behavior and those of others or else opposition is not really different from war. And we're headed by degrees in ways that we can't quite comprehend to a situation where there don't seem to be any rules. And this is complicated. There are no rules because partisans on either side are willing to countenance anything for the sake of victory or because victory is so hard to define except presidential elections, they're going to do it to own the other side. You don't know how elections are going to turn out even in November now, but getting other people to go apoplectic and maybe burst a vein tomorrow is actually doable. We have set the bar lower and lower for achievement, and we can no longer think publicly beyond the logic of tit for tat. You did something bad to me, I will be doing something bad to you. The only prophecy left is some kind of punishment. And this, of course, encourages all sorts of charlatans, all sorts of hysteria, because it's incredibly performative. And that's partly because we do it online now, and this is the other part of our political problem. We live in digital America now, a lot of the time, and we have no idea what the rules there are. Why is there so much insanity on social media? We don't kill each other in the streets. And apparently it's not going to work out for us. We thought, sure, we had the dot-com bubble, but then Facebook, Amazon, all these things became profitable or were newly created, and an entire new economy was created, so that was going to solve our problems. You don't have to worry about the crisis of politics in America or the economy or the tragedy of being human. You're going to get technology to save you. But then everybody learned that technology is your enemy. 
conservatives who were big Reagan deregulators, economy growth advocates, realized now that the people in the new economy, the super billionaires, all hate every conservative in America and every principle that conservatives stood or claimed to stand for. Apparently all the success might have doomed conservatism. But liberals too are learning that all these new technologies that were supposed to be liberal and liberating and leading to a cosmopolitan, no-border, free-movement ideology of individualism that would inevitably favor the liberals, they don't. They might help Trump win. They might help America's enemies win. For the first time in at least 100 years, the Democrat Party is against Russia now. (laughs) And all of this comes out of fear of technology and what digital is doing to America. Nobody knows how to operate in digital. What if it is that digital tricks led to Trump's victory? Well, you can't take it back. Of course, a good part of the liberal coalition really does believe the election was illegitimate and at some level it's not real. Who knows what that justifies? But, you know, you can't take back the election. What are you going to do about digital? Is it enough to get various social media corporations to censor or ban various provocateurs or insane hucksters who steal money by saying paranoid things to people? Are you going to have to ban conservatives in some way? What do these corporations have to do, for example, to prove themselves to liberals as loyal? Do they even have control over their platforms or technologies in a way that says, okay, we're going to kind of make the digital future liberal. It's going to be progressive. What if it turns out the internet isn't progressive? So there are lots of problems with doing politics, and it's not just the massive distinction between the electorate and the elites. It's also the massive changes created by digital technology that have shaken both coalitions very badly, and neither of them seem to have any idea what digital technology is for, except to rile up Twitter mobs. It's not going to be very workable politics, nobody has managed to do much by it, except of course destroy something that liberals had, that is authority, respectability, censorship in the news, in public discourse in America, in the culture. Well, that doesn't really matter now. And that, of course, is part of what makes liberals and progressives so hysterical. It's harder and harder to police opinion and public expression and what becomes popular because the internet is not under control in the way in which, in the good old days, the three networks were comfortably liberal, centrist. There's something more than that, in that the old three networks were operating under federal government license. I mean, were the people who worked for them liberal? Yeah, absolutely. Were the people who are doing the selection for the Today's News program left of center? Absolutely. If you examined it, could you notice it? Absolutely. But they were also operating under the fear that the government was going to totally mess up their lives if they were too overtly partisan. Dan Rather, I'm sure, was a very liberal guy. But there were limits to how far he could go because government regulation, even only implicitly, basically would have prevented CBS or ABC or NBC There was a limit to their partisanship, whereas on social media, that kind of relationship to the FCC doesn't exist, at least not yet. Some Republicans have hinted towards it, but there's a lot of liberals in the media and coming out of academia who are used that their spaces be conservative free, where conservatives have to either be closet or understand that any statement, in other words, you tell somebody conservative, screw you. And then the conservative says, no, screw you too. And then the administration says, oh, the conservative's got to go. No, he created an uncollegial environment where basically authority is utterly corrupt and utterly partisan. They're used to operating in those spaces and controlling those spaces. And I think there's a certain element where they want to bring that mentality to the social media platforms. 
they basically expect Facebook and Twitter to act like the administration of Evergreen State College. Where we riot and we chase people around with baseball bats. And if they look at us funny, the campus police arrests them. Because that's assault. Because we're rioting up, they're resisting down. Basically, they're, you know, petty, pissant Stalinists. The thing is, they expect social media to become that. And... Another thing that happens is that there's enough dirtbag, right of center, right wing, whatever you want to put it, provocateurs who can provide a justification for it. You can actually find the worst of humanity on social media and then use it as a pretext for banning or restricting your peaceful democratic political opponents. Because when you think of what all the violence that's inherent in the system, isn't Paul Ryan just as bad as the Nazis? Isn't he just a cleaned up version? And the thing is, it's extending that logic. Whereas if they go to CBS, you shouldn't really have Newt Gingrich on. CBS 30 years ago would have told them, you know... Our FCC license is a license to print money, and we're not going to give that up just to make you happy. Whereas on Facebook, you know, is there some kind of cultural simpatico thing going between the social media billionaires and the lumpen intelligentsia? Kind of. But also the social media platforms don't have the hammer of the FCC as obvious. In other words, they feel like they have a lot more leeway. So when the left-wing digital mob says, you got to watch it for these guys, they don't have to think, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to lose my monopoly. Whereas the social media platforms and Google, they tread much more when it comes to China. They're responsive to state power when they fear it, which is actually why some conservatives are thinking, listen, if they go too far, we'll use state power to break them. And the thing is, while billionaires, I'm sure, have cultural preferences, they prefer being billionaires much more than their policy preferences because they're gods in their own little world anyway. They might go along with the left-wing social media mobs as long as it costs them nothing. But when it costs them something, if they have to choose between their own money and their own autonomy and the left-wing social media mobs, it's not going to be a tough choice for Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, and Mark Zuckerberg is hoping like hell now that he'll get some kind of apolitical regulation, which will be a government stamp that says the algorithms are just algorithms, and what am I going to do about it? So that he can get his own license to print money on easiest terms. But what if instead this also turns into a political matter? Conservatives have no idea what the hell to do about the way opposition to liberals or progressives is treated on social media. And they have no idea what to do about regulating or changing the rules in any way for how these corporations do their business. But what if they get it into their heads that government has got to enter this space as well because it's the only lever of power that they can apply? So this looks like it might turn uglier again because as everywhere else you see obstacles and blockages in America and no way forward. More and more the conceptualization of the American people is, whether in partisan ways or not, as a stumbling block. There's no way to get ahead. There's too much craziness going on. It is too popular, too divisive, polarizing and at the same time ineffective. These ideas that this is the end of the world, we have to win this fight or it's over, never work out on any terms. You don't win and live or lose and die. America, of course, just goes on another day, another month, another year. Nobody quite knows where. But the contradiction between the utter hysteria of the threats and promises and, on the other hand, the mundanity of failure, incompetence and insecurity on a day-to-day basis creates a really bad way of doing politics. Nobody is credible anymore, is the brief way to put it. Shrill, hysterical, insane, these are ways to get attention and maybe to shut down criticism in some circumstances. But nobody is credible, nobody is trusting anybody, and there's no coalitional loyalty of any kind whereby a politician or any other kind of leader 
in America, there have been businessmen, there have been reverends who have had authority given by the public even without political office. Nobody has that kind of authority now and nobody therefore can call on loyalty and give people something worthwhile and calm things down. That's what elites or leadership would mean. That's what prudence would require now. And in absence of that, we get what we have, but more of it. And there's also, especially on the center-right, you'll often see people, Twitter might suspend somebody for no good reason, or Facebook might do something insane, like they flag the Babylon Bee as being fake news, even though it was obvious. I mean, there's something really malicious about it. And the social media oligarchies don't do nearly as much of it as they could, but even the hints of it are scary. And every once in a while, you will hear a conservative say, well, you know, they're private companies. They can do what they want. And on the other hand, you look at it and you go, this is the psychology of suicide where you think you're being reasonable, but you're actually a fanatic. Your theory of how institutions should work diverges from reality, and when confronted, you choose theory. Institutions that are in practice oligarchical. And it's like, well, you know, if we've been banned from Facebook and Twitter and Google, we'll start something else. And it's like, no, that's not how market works. You've completely lost the plot. And not only that, when your theories turn out to be wrong, what you do is you double down on the error. You're like the Soviet ideologist who says, okay, it works in practice, but what about in theory? I honestly think that's one of the appeals of Donald Trump, even though I can never support him, that a lot of times whenever conservative orthodoxy confronts reality, as much as he lies, a lot of times he's more likely to hit upon reality than his opponents. When someone says, you know, if, if the media is oligarchical, then we need to use the law to create space for the political opposition. A lot of conservatives go, but free market principles say. And what the other people say is that in practice, there's not going to be free market competition in this area. These large organizations need government regulation. Well, that's what a liberal would say. That doesn't make it wrong. Liberals also said the occupation of Iraq was going badly. That doesn't make them wrong. You sometimes have to revise your opinions in light of facts. Once again, I think one of the moments where the election, I don't want to say turned, but one of the really revealing moments was in the debate in South Carolina where Donald Trump said getting into Iraq was a mistake the way we got out was a mistake. And what's striking about what he said was it's just common sense. Getting in was a mistake. The way that Barack Obama withdrew troops in a way that created a vacuum, let Iran's influence grow, created the space for ISIS, that was obviously a mistake. But we had worked ourselves to a position in which nobody in either party was willing to say that out loud. Those, the Republicans had a stage full of people. Was Iraq a mistake? And what they would say is they would mash their hands over their mouths and go, yeah, 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 yeah. and they're saying is, yeah, but they don't want to hear it. And then they would say really loud the way Obama got out was bad. And you go to the Democrats, and the Democrats, they couldn't criticize anything Obama did. Everything had to be perfect. Did we get out perfectly? Oh, you know, there was no real alternative. Yeah, yeah, there was alternatives. But one of the things that makes Donald Trump so dangerous on one level is that on some things, he is willing to say things that neither party is willing to say for partisan advantage, which just happened to be true. Iraq was a mistake. Jeb Bush didn't want to say it. Mitt Romney wanted to avoid the question. And that gave him an advantage because there's an isolationist current in Republican politics. So when the Paul say Iraq was a mistake, okay, fine. The Paul family, if you get a couple of drinks into them, will say World War II was a mistake. We shouldn't have gotten in after Pearl Harbor. You know, they'll say Lincoln should not have gotten involved in the Civil War. They're so neutral that America should interfere in America. And they lacks all credibility. Whereas Donald Trump says, yeah, we shouldn't have gotten in, shouldn't have gotten out the way. There's a lot of people on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, black, white, who hear and go, yeah, that makes sense. Why didn't anybody say it? It's because for reasons of partisan passion, both parties were stuck in arguing things that the people who were arguing it knew was wrong. Yeah, 
so we're in a situation where we ended up with a con man president because we had con man elites who were bad at conning us. And people woke up to the fact that Democrats and Republicans govern America in a way that the majority of Americans doesn't like. And they ended up with another con man who seemed more believable, at least by opposition. Maybe if there had been any alternative, people would have gone with an alternative. But there wasn't. People were told that they were going to have to go back. That they're going to have to vote for the bright new hopes of 1992 Democrats. That they're going to have to relive the Clinton and Bush and Obama years. And maybe people didn't think that it worked out so well in the first place. So this is the situation we're in, but it's not at all clear that it can get better anytime soon because we have no new ideas. The parties are not reforming. There's not a lot of innovation in public speeches. Liberals are aware of how desperate their danger is in losing control of the culture, and so they have hysterical liberal versus progressive fights about which columnists are all right at the New York Times. As though that matters. If the New York Times were growing and powerful, there would be positions for everybody. But it's not. Its power is waning, and its influence is waning, and so fighting for scraps or for whatever is left is all of a sudden far more urgent because what else is there to do? And of course on the conservative side things are even weirder because victory has thrown them out of office, so to speak. The conservative intellectuals of America are useless because their party won. That's a very rare position, perhaps unique in American history, and it's understandable that everybody's very confused about it. But it also means that a lot of old ideas and institutions have to be left behind and new ways be found to talk to the people. What those might be, we don't quite know because nobody's really trying. The thing to notice, I believe, about the Trump elections and since is that we don't have a lot of failures. There have not been a lot of attempts to do new things, to persuade people, to organize people, to lead to a more intelligent and more representative politics. We have no attempts, really, because nobody quite knows how to deal with this. The parties are very, very weak, but at the same time ideologically incredibly narrow, and the ideology is therefore becoming more and more fake. We see with the Republican Party that after hysterical pronouncements for six years that they were going to get rid of Obamacare, if they win this and then that and then the other, now they run all of the federal government and the majority of the states, and they're doing nothing because they don't really believe in it. And all of a sudden the ideology looks even more fake than when Trump showed that, yeah, they're all fakes, they're all decent men, he's a cad, he's worse, he's a criminal maybe, but they're all fakes. And they've lied to the people and pretended to be incredible examples of virtue and leadership. And the people obviously doesn't react well to this kind of masquerade. What is going to make things better? We don't know, because it's become harder to organize people. Another thing to notice about why liberals are so hysterical, they have failed to organize even students to protest. If you can't protest super Hitler, you can't protest anything. If you can't organize against hell on earth and the end of justice for minorities in America, you can't organize for anything. And that shows what the new situation is. Americans are digital, the youngest Americans the most digital. How do you find people in the digital world? Apparently it's impossible. Clearly, corporations who organize the digital ghosts are super successful at it, and America has been reduced to the neo-feudalism of five or six massive corporations. But nobody knows how to organize them socially or politically or for anything else. 
And that's a very serious problem. You have to reach the people at some level in order to have politics. And nobody knows how to do it. Nobody has yet found where to go, how to do things to use these times of change and crisis and the new technologies to somehow begin assembling a new coalition and a new message that people can believe in, amplify, clarify, and try to turn into a platform and a doctrine of a party. These are supposedly the steps you go through, more or less, but nobody's taking this path. One of the weaknesses that intellectuals had is that the intellectuals who most recognized that something had to change... They stuck with the Republican Party because they saw nothing else. But the Republican electoral class didn't particularly want to change. You had people like Yuval Levin who were like, this can't go on that way. Ross Douthat, can't go on that way. You had Rihan Salam, things can't go on that way. But in practice, they're looking for conventional politicians to change things. But these politicians don't want to. Or if they do want to, it's something that's superficial. You know, to get a good column out of Ross Douthat or somebody, they might throw a tax credit or something. But at the end of the day, the core of their program is reenacting Reaganism on one level. And what makes Steve Bannon interesting, what Steve Bannon did was he was one of the guys who saw that it can't go on that way. But instead of sticking with the conventional Republican politicians, went with Trump. And that makes him look like a prophet. When he wasn't a prophet, other people were doing the same thing. They just weren't willing to sell out to Trump, whereas Bannon was. And one of the guys on Twitter, he said that problem with the Reformacons is that nobody was willing to have a bold Reformacon program. What they would do is they would create a meal that was designed for the business lobbies, and then they would put some Reformacon garnish on it. Whereas Donald Trump said, this can't go on anymore. It's not 1980. And he said, basically, if you were going to do a musical of Reformacons, it would be sad. And the show closing number would be Yuval Levin singing, I wanted this, but not like this. They knew it couldn't go on that way, but they couldn't get what they wanted on their own terms. And I think about um, Marco Rubio, a sterile reenactment of 1980. The more I think about Marco Rubio, the more he strikes me as being like Mike Dukakis. Now, on one level, Rubio is soaring rhetoric, and Dukakis's primary rhetorical style is the drone, and Rubio looks tall on TV, whereas Dukakis was really short. But they both represent, I think, an attempt to recreate a political coalition that has become stale. In other words, Mike Dukakis represented white ethnics, many of whom would voted for Reagan and become a Reagan Democrat. Whereas Marco Rubio represented the hope that Hispanics would vote Republican in larger numbers. But with both of them, there was the hope that identity politics could rescue an unpopular political agenda. It was a shortcut. It was a way of trying to avoid doing the hard work. I remember people talking about Marco Rubio and it sounded like Ronald Reagan. And it's like it was a sterile reenactment of Ronald Reagan. And where Marco Rubio talked about how much we need American power in the world. And all I was hearing was Marco Rubio not reckoning with what went wrong in Iraq. Basically, they're trying to use identity politics to paper over weaknesses of agenda. They're trying to use ethnic loyalty in order to get people to vote for an agenda they wouldn't otherwise want to vote for. And, well, it failed. I mean, Dukakis didn't get to be president. Part of it is that people looked at Mike Dukakis. At the end of the day, he had a lot of opinions on foreign policy and on crime that people did not like. And Marco Rubio, he had a lot of opinions. I mean, his version of a strong America, a lot of people thought, looked at and heard a reckless America, an America that refused to learn from its experiences. And they both ended up, the Democrats ended up moving towards the center with Bill Clinton, but in a strange sort of way, Americans ended up moving towards the crazy center with Donald Trump. I mean, there's a sense in which Donald Trump is a much more moderate candidate than his Republican rivals. Conservatives said he's not a real conservative, and Donald Trump said, yeah, okay, I'm not a real conservative. Maybe that's a good thing.
And there's all kinds of ways that it's a bad thing, but there might be ways to learn about Donald Trump's success. And they might be pointing at real problems with what being a real Republican means. Yeah. The big delusion among Republicans, among a lot of middle class Republican voters, and of course among conservatives who are principled, men of words that is, is that you don't have a message problem, you have a messenger problem. If you take a younger man, handsome, looks good in a suit, seems to talk properly, you can get all the policies of George W. Bush all over again as though they had been that popular or campaigned on that much when Bush actually won. And that's nuts. Marco Sunshine Senator Rubio cannot talk to the new coalition because he doesn't even know what that might be. He was there to allow the Republicans who feel they own the party and the party's ideas to have another go at it. Because after all, we gave Obama a try and he failed. It's our turn again. And that's an insane, entitled way of thinking about politics, and of course it failed. I like the reformicons a lot, but these people don't deal with politics. They don't deal with the American people. They tried to get some policies to some politicians who seemed less obtuse or less narrow-minded than the others. So a reformicon politician would be like Mike Lee. And unfortunately, that's not enough. They hope that somebody like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, also friends of the reformicons, they could be the popular face that could sell these policies. There is no popular face that can sell these policies because a popular face, first of all, would have to tear down a lot of the party. The party doesn't want anything. If you ask the Republican Party as it thinks of itself, what is justice? The answer is tax cuts. That's not a good answer. And it's not the true answer. And it's not going to work in 2018. It's not going to work in 2020. And uh, although the Republican electorate was just as narrow-minded as its intellectuals, really, it was also far more willing than they ever understood to go for something crazy if that's the only game in town. If you can't have anything serious, if there's no game in town, go for crazy, go for hateful, go for somebody who finally humiliates liberals in the way they've always humiliated you. And that's why Donald Trump is so good at turning stuff you find online or in the press into political scandals. There's agreement among the electorate that the politicians aren't delivering on politics anyway. Why not instead go crazy over the NFL or whatever else? And here you see a kind of pattern in American politics. Liberals think of institutions primarily as something you infiltrate and take over, up to and including apparently the NFL now. Conservatives think of institutions as primarily something you abandon at the first contact with the enemy. All of a sudden, Republicans don't like the NFL anymore. Wow, that was an overnight change. Of course, there's a lot of demographic change built into it. There's a lot of social change built into it. But it came to a very serious decision very quickly because that's the trend. If you don't have a real investment in institutions, you're going to be tempted to abandon them. Or delegitimize them. I mean, exactly. there's a reciprocal process where if an institution's got to be healthy, it has to be nurtured, which also means that people within the institutions have to be willing to put the institution's long-term health above their own short-term interest at times. And what you have is conservatives who feel unrepresented within these institutions and are glad to destroy them from the outside. And you also have liberals who are glad to burn the institutional credibility of these institutions from the inside in order to gain short-term advantage. So these institutions are getting it from both sides. You can see it in the media, where if Antifa thugs beat up a reporter, the story will be mostly peaceful protest. 
Unless it's documented that 51% of the rioters beat up a reporter, it's mostly peaceful because the reporters are willing to burn the institution's credibility in order to make left-wing protesters look a little less bad than they otherwise might. Yeah, there is a national agreement that alt-right protesters are wicked and despicable, but you've got Jeffrey Goldberg, who runs The Atlantic, talking about how today Antifa protesters and thugs are sort of like the men who stormed Normandy on D-Day. Wow. The combination of contempt, snobbery, and this foolish nostalgia that thinks you can appropriate the past and make some kind of noise and influence change things, it's utterly silly. But that again shows that everybody is stuck in the past. Even the political fights we have, these fictional wars fought with words and symbols online and in the press, they're not dealing with problems today or the elections of 2016. They're dealing with the past before that. They seem to think they're winning, whereas actually what they're doing is making the institution smaller and weaker. How can you lose respect for this institution? Well, when you downplay your reporters being assaulted, you're uncovering for the rioters. You're trying to give them space to operate. You know, when a reporter gets assaulted and the headline is mostly peaceful protest, and then you're booed by Trump supporters and your headline is atmosphere of terror, you've weakened the institution. You've weakened public respect for the institution. You're doing it to advance some kind of goal or even just to make yourself feel better. But now the institution has less public buy-in. You saw the same thing with the Academy Awards. If you're going to build around anti-Trump speeches, well, you're going to lose a lot of people who might want to see who the best actor is, but don't necessarily hate Trump. You're also going to lose some apolitical people who don't necessarily care about Trump one way or another, or might even dislike him, but don't want to be lectured about Trump by millionaires. So you're not acting as a custodian of the institution, but at the same time, you're also strengthening your opponents. Whenever you respond to left-wing violence by downplaying it, when Donald Trump says they don't care about the truth, they don't care about your rights, they'll be glad to have you assaulted if they can get what they want. All they care about is their privileges. Well, that's on you to some extent. You're strengthening your opponents. You're weakening your own institutions. And what are you really getting from it? If you want to downplay left-wing violence, what's the gain? What is gained that is a compensation for burning your institution's credibility? And frankly, I don't see it except that, damn it, I'm not going to give those guys an inch. They're willing to damage their own institutions for even the smallest and most illusory of short-term gains. Yeah, that's what describes a situation where institutions realize that they're facing popular abandonment and delegitimization not by partisanship, but instead by apathy, indifference, and moving on, abandonment. Nobody is managing to organize large numbers of Americans and maybe outline a new coalition by outrage. Not on the left, not on the right, not liberals, not conservatives, not Democrats, not Republicans. The obvious results of two years of massive political hysteria, neither party really has anything new to offer. They're not using all this energy, all this polarization for any real purpose. And of course, the people themselves are to a large extent involved in this because institutions and influential people and those who aspire to influence are realizing more and more that they're grasping at water and air. There's nothing you can grab, and that's a really desperate situation to be in for people who are trying to influence the nation and who are realizing more and more that technology doesn't mean you can broadcast. A few people can broadcast to 100 million or 200 million or 300 million. What you get instead with our technology is casting that's narrower and narrower, and it catches less and less. So the organizational problems are everywhere. Not the technology, not the parties, not the candidates, not the rhetoric. Nothing is really working. I think Adam Elkis also talked about something where basically there's, especially among liberal elites, there's an entryist mentality. 
you go into an institution, you capture the institution, you use the institution for your own purposes. But the problem is the parasitic mentality. When you use the institution for those purposes, you weaken the institution. And you don't even get what you want as a result. I mean, for all the entryism into liberal media, it didn't stop Donald Trump from becoming president. It might actually have encouraged it. So what you have is hundreds of newspapers published simultaneous editorials criticizing Donald Trump. It's baffling what they think they're achieving. Do they think that Donald Trump supporters don't know that liberal journalists despise them? What response do they expect? And when liberal journalists say, we believe in freedom of the press together, simultaneously, don't they know that what people are thinking is that we believe in our own privilege and position and that we should monopolize a public conversation and that we should be exempt from criticism? Because once again, Donald Trump hasn't shut down the Washington Post. He's criticized its owner. There's been no actual oppression. Donald Trump did not punch a reporter in the face over the weekend. He didn't try to swat away their cameras. So what are they really saying? It's a demand for influence as a class, a demand that they should be exempt from criticism, except the mildest criticism from licensed authorities. And what did they gain? A lot of things in response to Trump have been futile, but this strikes me as exceptionally futile, exceptionally vain. Yeah. All these institutions seem to react to their diminishing influence with increased hysteria, as though that's going to compensate. There is a nationwide problem. There is no the conversation. There is no the public opinion. There is no the venue where everybody is going to come together. Public opinion and conversations are now necessarily very fractured. It's only people who realize that and try to make the best of it who can lead forward. People who are trying to put as many of the pieces back together again so that they'll claw their way back to their influence, claw their way back to the things they were expecting to get out of a career when they got into the business. That's not going to happen. And the obsession with we have to morally purify ourselves by getting rid of the liberals or by getting rid of the conservatives, by getting rid of Trump voters or by getting rid of their opponents, that's not going to work we'll have to face again and again the fact that we don't know how to live together anymore but in some way we're stuck with each other and we find it harder and harder to organize at any level except that on a day-to-day level we live with each other all the time and trump voters and trump opponents live with each other on a daily they work with each other they get along well they josh each other i mean some of it is a social media phenomenon but our political classes are I think a lot of the rage and heat is on one level real. Is there a pro wrestling element to it? Yeah, maybe. But I do think there is an urge for destruction, an urge for domination that's in our politics. One of Donald Trump's appeal to his supporters is if our opponents feel the urge to dominate and are ruthless, I want someone who feels the urge to dominate and who is ruthless for me. And I think that's part of his appeal. They feel like other politicians, they're not willing to get dirty. Whereas Donald Trump, on one level, his vices become his virtues because they see him as being willing to be as dirty as they perceive his opponents as being, as willing to declare a moral holiday as they are. And they see that as advantage rather than social degradation. Or they assume it's going to happen anyway, so they might as well get the most that they can for it. And if you think of politics as stuff you talk about on a day-by-day basis as opposed to real life, then Trump is the only thing that's giving Americans life by hatred. Trump is allowing conservatives to hate liberals, is allowing liberals to hate conservatives better than ever, and everybody makes a business out of it. The press for Trump and the press against Trump, media online for and against Trump, all live out of him. What would they do without him? And again, the liberals who are today hateful of Trump are beholden to institutions of media that gave Trump infinite publicity and broadcasting power into the heads and hearts and homes of Americans that they never thought about at the time. 
they did it for profit then and they're profiting from opposing him even more vociferously now, but it's not really translating into real life. Yeah, especially since the Republican parties, ever since the failure of the Obamacare repeal, and they managed to pass a tax plan of details of which most people can't remember now, the Republican Party has reached an internal peace on economic policy by not having one. They're just going to ride the business cycle for as far as it takes them, and when there's a cyclical recession, they'll take the hit. At least the Democratic Party is moving in the socialist left. The Democratic Party is willing to embrace much higher social spending, though I'll notice that they're saying, don't worry about the costs. That explicitly seems to be the argument now. Who's going to pay more? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Which, once again, points to certain fractures within the coalition. There is an upper middle class friend within the Democratic Party that wants much bigger spending, but they're going to have to pay more taxes for it and don't want to. And they're really angsty about what the sticker would be. But the Republican Party's economic, internal economic consensus has utterly shattered. I mean, tax cutting has gone as far as tax cutting is going to go. And that's it. Now all they have is just pointing at this month's economic indicators for as long as this month's economic indicators are good. And then when those indicators go bad, they got nothing. Yeah, it's amazing to see the corruption in the Republican Party. It's rare that a party is destroyed by victory, but there is. This party pretended that they somehow, by opposing Obama, they're going to create a future and it's going to get better. And they have no ideas. They're doing nothing. They're trying nothing. And they're not talking to the people either. Again, this is a way in which politics is hiding behind the Trump crisis. Well, you know, don't worry about what the legislature of America is doing. Don't worry about what the Republican Party is doing for the upcoming campaign in 2018 or anything else. Worry instead about Trump. The Republican Party is more dead than the Democrat Party, it would seem, even though it is the party in power. That's astounding, but it is true. And this, again, puts conservatives as journalists or intellectuals or political organizers in a crazy situation. Even if they have any ideas, nobody's buying. Nobody cares what any of you think. Those who oppose Trump, what are they going to do? And those who are for Trump have no influence and have no way of putting forward an agenda. And again, they have to be hysterically pro or against Trump because they can't be part of the real world where any decisions are made. Wherever it is the decisions could be made, whatever decisions could be made realistically in 2018, nobody's there, nobody's even trying. And so you have a hysterical press on the liberal side that's impotent, but you have as impotent a press on the conservative side. Amazing but true, and again it shows what a massive separation our new situation, social, economic, technological, is creating. The people who think you can talk your way into politics and get stuff done, or who at least hope they'll be getting some stuff done, because they have a right and entitlement to power, to influence, to office, they can't do anything. They're grasping blindly, and this isn't getting any better. The elections of 2016 have clarified nothing at the level of how do we people who talk and have an audience reach into politics, reach into the electorate, reach into people's lives enough to create a better coalition that will give them the things they need to live decent lives. You have hysteria on the left and abandonment on the right, strikingly enough. Well, on the other things on the right, the one thing that came out of the 2016 election is that I think Reagan nostalgia is, if not dead, at least it's in remission. More people have realized that you can't get back. There was a dream that you could go back to not exactly Reaganism, but a more business class inflected version of, of Reaganism. That was a dream of the autopsy, where you can use Reaganized symbolism to basically like advance the interests of the business lobbies. And there's much less of that now. 
I mean, I'm sure there's people out there who are thinking, you know, if we can redesign the system, I bet we can get a zombie Reagan candidate with one third of the Republican electorate. In other words, somebody else will get two thirds of the vote, but we'll manipulate the system. That's really what James Madison would have wanted. That's what the founders would have wanted. You see this, like, how can we prevent Trump? How about getting more votes? When you're designing the systems, how about you assume that you actually have more popularity? And that's like the one place they don't want really to go because they know the opinion polls really out of the binary nature of politics, most Republicans say they're sticking with Trump. They'd rather have Trump than Ryan. They'd rather have Trump than Ted Cruz. That's also because the respondents will know that their choice is between Trump and the Democrats, and they're going to stick with Trump. They're not going to get Ted Cruz. They're not going to get Marco Rubio. They're going to get the Democrats. They don't want the Democrats. So even though, in theory, they're asking them about a choice about what kind of Republican you want, in their own heads, they're answering it. Do you want this Republican or do you want a Democratic Party that's headed towards the extremes? They answer it like that. Yeah. But there's no federal agenda among the Republicans. If the congressional Republicans don't have answers, who would be the obvious people to replace the congressional Republicans? You would naturally look for the Republican governors. They would be the obvious people to bring new ideas into American politics. At least that's how it's been for most of American history. And this decade should have belonged to the Republican governors. You've had Republican governors all over the Northeast and the Midwest. And they've served two terms, three terms. They've been reelected. They're popular. This should have been their time. But they've all failed miserably. And the one Republican governor who did the best was Mitt Romney, who had the weakest Republican record. When you look at all the Republicans running for president, Rick Perry, Tim Pawlenty, Scott Walker, Romney, he was the only one to get the nomination. Why is that? Even though you would think that the Republican governors would have the original ideas, when it comes to federal politics, they're probably the least original. Because in this decade, being governor and being president are such different jobs the issue matrices are so different that being governor is almost no preparation discussing or thinking about federal issues. And one of the reasons why Mitt Romney succeeded, whereas Scott Walker and Tim Pawlenty failed, Mitt Romney recognized that being governor, pointing at his record as governor, was no real preparation for being president. So he had to master federal issues. He had to master the issue matrix in a way that Rick Perry and Scott Walker didn't because Rick Perry and Scott Walker believed they could point to their records and that they could thereby win. And that just killed them. Yeah, that's a very good point that the only path to advancement and legitimacy as a contender in the Republican Party was supposedly the governorships. And the governors were also supposed to have a certain advantage by saying we're competent, we're not partisan, we're not shrill, and we're outsiders, we're not from Washington, D.C. All of this stuff was supposed to be advantages, and all of it has turned out to be crippling because it means they have no idea what the hell is happening in America. They may know their states properly, but nobody has any idea what's happening in America. And this has left people not just without intellectual guidance from magazines, papers, TV. It has left them without practical guidance from people actually in government at any level. And that's an amazing thing. The Republican Party is dominating America electorally at every level, large and small, national and state. And there's no Republican Party as such. There's nothing bringing them together, really, except that they rode to victory by not being the Democrats that the people came to hate since Obamacare. And, of course, as you said, we're still stuck in a situation where the only way the Republican Party changes is by more victories. You want to change the ideas or the policies or get an agenda, 
losing will do nothing to change the Republican Party, and the electorate finds it scary, intolerable. Instead, more winning is what's required, and so yeah, the Republicans will stick with the Republican Party, they will stick with Trump, and maybe whatever other crazy things happen, this will lead to some better change or some ideas about policies, but it means that everything is stuck. There is no entry that's obvious for new ideas or for new people. Well, also, I mean, especially in this decade, nobody has been less prepared to talk about national issues, except for maybe Alexandria Ocasio, than Republican governors. And we tend to personalize it. And I think the personalization is kind of unfair. Like you look at Sarah Palin. Before she entered public life, Sarah Palin was a successful governor, short-termer, but she managed to balance the budget during a huge recession based on a combination of tax increases and spending cuts classic pragmatic government politics. She enters federal politics at the top. She can't discuss federal issues because in our era, politicians have to blab a lot about a lot of different issues. And recording technology means that your answers are going to be very heavily scrutinized. So you're doing a lot of talking, which means every statement is extremely high stakes. And she wasn't ready to play at that level. But the reason why she wasn't able to play at that level was because the issue she was talking about as governor had very little relation to the issues that she was going to talk about as a presidential candidate. Everyone seems to interpret it as a Sarah Palin issue. It's a structural issue. Because when Tim Pawlenty and Rick Perry ran for president in 2012, they faced the exact same problem. In other words, hey, Tim Pawlenty, you've had a deal with Medicaid. What's your health care plan? Well, he didn't really have a health care plan. He had a pointing at his record plan. He had assumed that having been governor, you could just have like the conversational level of a talk radio caller and just BS your way through it. And Tim Pawlenty failed for that reason. It was a preparation failure more than anything else. This week, Tim Pawlenty lost a primary for governor of Minnesota. So there's been some retrospective Tim Pawlenty. And the theme of it is that Tim Pawlenty was just too nice for the Republican Party. Tim Pawlenty is too good for America. That's nonsense. Tim Pawlenty went in there thinking, I have a better record as governor than Mitt Romney. I'm more conservative. I spent less money. I had lower taxes. My health care plan was less like Obamacare than his. All I have to do is point at it, and I don't have to do anything else. And that's why he failed. Rick Perry. Everyone seems to treat Rick Perry like an idiot. Rick Perry is arguably the most successful governor in the history of Texas, a pretty big state. He mastered the game. He beat the Bush family in Texas. Not a lot of people have done that over the last 20 or 30 years, but he wasn't prepared. And people seem to interpret a lack of preparation as a lack of intelligence, which it isn't. So people write off Rick Perry as being dumb. They write off Tim Pawlenty as being too nice, whereas the reality is they didn't respect the challenge. Whereas Mitt Romney knew one thing. He couldn't show up, point at his record, and hope to be the Republican nominee, being a pro-abortion, state-level Obamacare governor, and getting the nomination. So he needed to figure out what Republican primary voters wanted, and he told them what they wanted to hear. Whereas on federal-level issues, Tim Pawlenty and Rick Perry thought they could just show up, point at their records, and be elected, without necessarily understanding what the voters were thinking and what the voters wanted. And Scott Walker did the same thing, because you saw Scott Walker, and they would ask him about immigration, and Scott Walker would vacillate between shutting down the borders and open borders. He didn't know what he thought. He hadn't thought about it. That is the tragedy of the Republican governors over the last decade. The people who should have been the most pragmatic were actually the people who were the most poorly informed about federal issues, and they left the field to ideologues and common. Yes. If it's not politicians that can run in the federal arena and it's not the case anymore that magazines can be influential, that the media, the intellectuals can somehow help them prepare for this arena, who's gonna speak and be listened to? Who can talk Americans' ears off on TV? Celebrities will do it. 
in these last gasping moments where TV still matters, at least because we haven't figured out what technology is going to be important in political communication next, well, that's how you get celebrity. That's how you get TV at its most TV. The strange thing is that to have been conservative, to have been a Republican, would have meant working hard to master the various conversations, actually, that seem to influence how people think because they speak to real concerns, however glibly. And at the same time, of course, they would have had to look for people who get the technology right in order to appeal to Americans, in order to find Americans and bring them together. And nobody's doing that. In his own way, Trump seems to have had an organization to deal with online matters, reaching Americans through digital advertising and getting some attention that way. Before him, Obama had a tech team that he was really, really proud of. Finally, Silicon Valley liberalism and liberal progressive social justice had met and married in Obama and his relationship to Silicon Valley. But that was not real. Obama had no more ideas about what was going to happen with technological changes or where the young are than anybody else. And certainly the Republicans have no idea what world younger Americans live in who are far more at home in this incredibly ghostly world that's so deserted, the digital world. The truth is, these are opposing requirements. Knowing how to communicate in the new technology and, on the other hand, having any grasp of politics through practice are not possible together now. Reagan had the great advantage of knowing TV and knowing conservative politics and knowing enough about the Republican Party and even working class electorates from experience after a long time. He got lucky that TV was still important in America when he got a shot at the title. And now nobody's in a position to get lucky. There's nobody who's had a lot of time to master the various issues of policy at the federal level, and on top of that to have some practice in politics, and on top of that to master a technology of communication. That trifecta is not possible. From some part or the other or the third, people are going to have to come who can try and get some of that trifecta working for them to have any plausibility as a candidate. But it's not at all obvious who might be up to the task. Well, part of it is that the Republican governors participated in an illusion. Look at Scott Walker. Scott Walker managed to restrain public employee costs in Wisconsin in the face of terrible opposition. It's a genuine accomplishment. So you look at Scott Walker and you assume Scott Walker should be able to succeed on federal level issues. Because after all, if you can cut teacher pensions, you can cut Social Security. These are very different things. And the assumption that the key to achieving your unpopular goals at the federal level is getting somebody who achieves something totally different at the state level, it's a fantasy. It's the same fantasy that said, how do we get Hispanics to vote for us? Get a Hispanic guy. These are all the same illusion. You can scam your way out of your unpopular policies by getting the right guy, by getting somebody with the right resume, the right skin tone, the right surname. These are all ways of dodging the issue. And the Republican governors bought into it. That's a tragedy. Republican governors thought, hey, I was a successful governor. I should be able to now succeed at this, that, or the other thing, even without having to actually master the issues at hand. And they were all destroyed by it. They all had their federal careers blighted by it because they thought they could come in and they would just basically point at their record and people would go, yeah, I kind of trust this guy. People didn't trust them to deal with immigration. They didn't trust them to deal with entitlements. And that's why we didn't get a Republican governor as president. Yeah. 
and it doesn't look like it's going to get any better in the near term and it's worth pointing out as we have tried to do how much incompetence corruption malevolence and inefficiency and impotence characterizes both the discourse and the intellectual side of politics on both sides it's remarkable how many failures we have and what's most remarkable i think about them is that they are for the most part essentially nostalgic the people who were fighting politics in in 2016 and who are doing it now still seem to think that america is going through whatever was happening a generation back or even two generations back none of them seem to be aware of the fact that every problem from political organization to public persuasion looks quite different now it takes a long hard work to get it right to figure out how do you talk to people now how do you persuade them now how do you organize support and how are you going to get an agenda that is actually popular that the coalition could rally around as you put it everywhere you see people looking for shortcuts and there are no shortcuts in a chaotic situation that's the first thing to realize we're in a chaotic situation things don't look normal because they aren't normal and you can see that by how many careers and how many aspirations and how many forms of influence are dwindling or cut short. A lot of people had entitlement in their bones. They thought, yep, I know what the next step is. I'm going to step into the national arena. Things are going to be fine for me, for my organization, for people who agree with me or the people who have told me what to think about this or that. None of these things have been realized. That's, I think, the important thing about what happened in 2016, that people aren't willing to pay attention to at all, even now. That all the people who thought they knew what the future looked like and how to position themselves to be on top in that future, they were wrong. We know that those futures aren't the future, whatever that turns out to be. People who are more willing to think, okay, part of the future probably has a lot to do with this big thing that a lot of people are worried about or afraid of, those might have a chance, those might have some hope of success and of broadening their success to the national level. But we don't hear about or from those people. We don't know who's getting some of the things right and getting bigger in the meantime. The only new politician that's being talked about, and perhaps this should be our closing section, is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the 28-year-old liberal progressive Democrat who just won a primary against a powerful incumbent in Brooklyn, in New York City, and seems to be what Democrats hope is the new face of national politics for the Democrat Party and some way of rallying the people, especially poorer, non-white voters. It also turns out that Alexandria Ocasio, she actually did pretty well among young white voters in her district. But who are the young white voters in her district? Probably, like we talked about, lumpen intelligentsia. But the thing about Alexandria Ocasio is that when I hear her talk, I kind of hear Sarah Palin. It's tough to jump into national politics as a political figure at the top. Because as we've said before, it's not like you can just show up to the Chamber of Commerce, give a 10-minute speech, and then walk off and then have everyone spend the next day interpreting it through the paper. You do a vast amount of talking, people asking you questions, even friendly questions. And you have your opponents and your friends scrutinizing it very closely. And it's largely extemporaneous speech. And unless you spend hundreds and hundreds of hours thinking about how you're going to answer these questions, you don't have to be an idiot. Alexandria Ocasio isn't an idiot. Sarah Palin isn't an idiot. But we demand such a high degree of glibness and seeming depth about a huge number of issues from our politicians that you're going to come across like an idiot.
And that's the problem that our public expectations isn't just that somebody will speak about a vast array of issues. You know, they'll ask you, hey, the Middle East, am I right? And now you have to talk about this vast area that's extremely complicated and you have two minutes to talk about it. It's tough unless you've prepared to work within these conventions. And one of the reasons why Barack Obama did so well was even while he was a state legislature, he had spent a lot of time thinking about how do I talk about taxes? How do I talk about Social Security? How do I talk about Israel? What did somebody else say that got him in trouble? How do I say it so that I don't get in trouble? Ronald Reagan did the same thing. But a lot of people just show up and they seem to think that it's like showing up at a bar, ordering a drink, and then just sharing your opinions. And that's a fast track to oblivion, unless you're Donald Trump. As a general rule, if you speak like that, which is how normal people speak, you're going to be destroyed through the scrutiny process that exists in 2018. And Alexandria Ocasio should be elected, but she did herself a lot of damage with some of her comments. And it's not really her fault. It's that the conventions are such that you'd probably be better off doing a lot less talking. And when, when John McCain brought Sarah Palin in, you know, Sarah Palin was a successful politician in her own state, but she was successful in one domain. In this other domain, you have to learn these skills. You have to practice them. You just can't come in. And as we talked about the Republican governors, guys like Scott Walker and Tim Pawlenty and Rick Perry didn't master these skills, which is why they didn't get very far. You know, whenever I think of Alexandria Ocasio stumbling, talking about Israel, I see Scott Walker stumbling about immigration because as a governor, he never had to have a federal immigration strategy. And his actual ideas about immigration were stupid. He was basically an open borders guy in terms of his instincts. And now he's thrown in on the deep end with a very complicated issue. He's just sharing his thoughts and then people respond badly to his thoughts. So now he has to try to figure out something that he should pretend to believe, but he doesn't know what people even like. And that's where Alexandria Ocasio is. And it's a systemic problem. Federal issues are complicated. And the pattern established in post-1980, that pattern is broken down. Over time, politics has become more and more rigid. Our politicians have become more and more stereotyped. In the 1980s, you might have a conservative politician who's liberal on two or three issues. You might have a liberal politician who's conservative on two or three issues. By the middle of the last decade, you had more and more politicians who were stereotypes of conservatism and liberalism. What that did was that coming in, you had a script. Well, now the scripts have broken down. And that makes a job even harder, which means you have to respect the challenge even more. And if you haven't put in the thought, the process is going to chew you up and spit you out. So in some strange negative way, we're getting a sense of how much we should respect the intelligence and hard work of the politicians who make it because it's so hard and it's so rare. Let me give you two examples about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. One of them, as you mentioned, she shows up on TV. Now she's the new hope of the Democrats and she wants to campaign for the party to turn it into a progressive direction, which I am all for. This woman talks a lot about the lower classes, about people who need government help and who are in real trouble. And I'm all for that, even if it's a progressive Democrat talking about it. But she shows up on TV because she's the national hope of the Democrat Party. She's the national hope of the intelligentsia. All the people who are losing influence and power and are realizing their impotence are hoping maybe she's the messenger we need. Maybe we can associate with her, associate her with us, and she will lead us back to popularity. We will matter again. And that's, of course, nuts, and it's doing her damage. And on TV, she looks inane. She has some of the reflexes of a collegiate liberal who wants to dodge questions by saying, well, I feel it's a nascent conversation. We should be listening, which is a nutty way to do politics on TV in America. But on the other hand, I read a mid-sized essay for one of the liberal Catholic magazines, either America or Commonweal, where she was talking about the immigration issue from a Catholic left perspective. She sounded incredibly intelligent. 
she was what you would expect a college education to give most college graduates, which they don't get. So she was head and shoulders above most politicians when it comes to writing coherently and thoughtfully even. Now, in politics, on TV, as opposed to writing a thing down, she looks terrible. That impressed me, that contrast, and I hope that these failures teach her very quickly that she needs new skills and she needs to deal with things very, very differently than she has to take her ideas, which I think really are the future of the Democrat Party, in a more popular direction. She needs to learn that her ideas are popular in the sense that lots of people support more government help, more institutional arrangements that will help poorer Americans. But they're not popular in the sense that she knows how to talk, when to talk, to whom to talk, in a way to attract attention and to earn a good reputation and to earn people's trust. And these things also come with a price tag, which might be a lot less popular, depending on how you design the programs, which is a matter of you have to care about it, because otherwise these programs could produce disaster rather than actually helping anybody. But the thing about her is the temptation is to look at Sarah Palin. Sarah Palin had a huge fan base. She had also people who despise her, but you can win over at least some of the people who despise you. She could have hit the books. She could have tried to produce an agenda that was broadly popular. But instead, she chose to exploit her fandom for short-term financial gain. And the thing is, she's now a wealthy woman as a result of it. I assume she made millions and millions of dollars. But it was not a very public-spirited decision. She basically chose to look at her supporters as being customers, the way Marvel Studios looks at the people who buy tickets. What's she going to do? She strikes me as being public-spirited, but I don't know. There seems to be a resistance to doing the work among our political elites. Even when they're relatively young, they go into these situations thinking they know everything they need to know, and then they just, it's all crystal intelligence. There's no fluid intelligence. It seems surprisingly rigid for people who had grown up at least partly in a digital world. That's quite odd. Yeah, this is partly the problem of our increasingly moralistic politics. It's one thing to win approval in your constituency, among your peers. It's one thing to come up in the organizational politics of progressive Democrats who are all about democratic socialism. It's a completely other thing to talk to the nation, even to talk to the electorate of the Democrat Party as a whole, rather than just the few people you actually deal with. Of course, it's America. The temptation of easy success is almost unbeatable, and its form is usually the politics of celebrity. And that's even harder to resist because then people seem to love you. You can speak for the American people. Look at them. They love it. That's a temptation that's very, very hard to resist, and maybe does take some combination of early success and early defeat to get it into your head that things are way more complicated. We need to learn to benefit from the crisis of the times, to realize that a lot of these fast changes also mean a lot of bad ideas are going to be cleared out of the path. As institutions are weakening, you also get a chance to try new things if you are looking for something to guide you. How do you get to a coalition now for this election? How do you get to a broader coalition? What would it take to reach people through technology, but also to reach people through rhetoric and through organization? These are things that haven't been done in a long while, of course, because we took for granted how the parties worked, how elections worked, how little alternative you need to offer the people, how high the incumbency rates are in Congress. Everything up till now, including the costs, of course, of elections and the need for a nationally recognized name, have led people to think of entrance into politics as very, very narrow and very, very rigid. And the moralism of our politics, as I said, has made things even worse by suggesting that ideological conformity done with enough hysteria and char, maybe, will shoot you upward into success. 
and we need to deal with the failures we have now, get rid of some of the old politicians and hope that the new politicians get just enough opportunity, just enough success and enough failure to wake them up, to get them to realize that you're not going to be able to do it the way it was done five years ago. You need to look at what your real success is now and how to build on it. You need to look at what your real failures are now and how to learn from them to fix this stuff while you're, of course, always on the clock trying to run for this election or for the next election. Happily, there is time in between elections for people who want to have another try at it. That's not impossible. And maybe failure is going to teach people in this way. The prize is always there, dangled before you. You could win the next one. There's also learning from failure. Our recent presidents, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, they'd all lost races earlier in their careers. And one thing that's really disturbing about our politics recently is that people interpret their own defeats as the fault of somebody else. If people reject you, it's because they're jerks. Well, maybe they're jerks, but maybe there's something wrong with you too. And one thing to be said about George Bush and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, they didn't respond to their defeats by blaming the electorate. They responded to their defeats by understanding that they needed to understand their country better. Now, there's all kinds of things that are wrong with all those men, but there's something to be said in our politics where if you lose, you don't shrug and say, well, I guess they're dumb. I guess they're bad. I guess they've walked away from everything that's good in society by rejecting me. This is an opportunity for you to learn. Now, it doesn't mean you have to adopt every bad idea that's popular in the moment, but this is an opportunity for you to say, all right, what exactly am I doing wrong? What about their lives am I not understanding? And not treating them like marks. Not saying, oh, okay, this line was bad, this line will be better. If I part my hair differently, this will be better. If I flip-flop on an issue, this will be better. I mean, just thinking about why did they reject you? What was going on in their lives? What are their aspirations? What maybe do you have wrong? Barack Obama was able to do it. I mean, Barack Obama lost a race for the House of Representatives, and he realized he wasn't going to become the kind of local state political leader he wanted to be, but there were also other opportunities, and he had a chance to learn from this experience to talk to a wider electorate, to understand a wider electorate. Who's doing that right now among the Republicans? You have some people who are slavishly following Trump, who are trying to imitate Trump very badly, and you have some people who are grumbling and bitter because they didn't get to be the Reagan they imagined they wanted to be, and now somebody else is going to be Reagan. No, nobody else is going to be Reagan, but maybe you could be the best version of yourself. Maybe you could actually try to incrementally improve the country that actually exists, rather than trying to reenact the drama of 1980 again. It's a time to realize that there are ways to figure out where popular opinion is, what are the things that are really worrying people, and to try to figure out how your political principles, whichever of the two ideologies you embrace, how do they fit this reality? What do you actually have to offer? And how can you get people to be persuaded and to give you a chance? This is possible because now we keep having wave or near-wave elections. Before 94, when Republicans swept Congress for the first time in a generation, wave elections were fairly rare. Now, we've had one in 2006-8, we had another one in 2010, and the wider sweep in 2012 and 14 and 16 that watched the Republicans as high almost as the Democrats had been before. 
lots and lots of people have lost their jobs and lots and lots of other people have gained jobs and it doesn't look like elections are going to stop these partisan changes in Congress and that means that there really is opportunity to get rid of some politicians and get new ones and it also means that new politicians have to desperately try through technology and popularity to reach the people because they have absolutely zero chance of taking over Congress. The way Congress works has never been quite as centralized in a speaker, in a majority leader, and of course the minority leaders on the other side. And that means you have no chance of quick advancement. That, I hope, will incline people to try to appeal to the people in some persuasive, intelligent way that can lead to a broader coalition. They have to get a reputation and they have to get influence somewhere and it's not going to be with their party leaders. As both Democrats and the Republicans have proved, they don't give a damn about new politics. Democrats really are the party that wants more Hillary. They really are the party that wants more Nancy Pelosi. And of course, Republicans wanted Paul Ryan to be what Republicans had been for so long. They only had that guy as speaker on the assumption that he wouldn't do anything except maybe pass another tax cut. And all of these are failed models of political leadership in Congress, but there's no alternative to them. And if Mitch McConnell proves anything, it means that you have to be a really good manager and to not care about what the hell is going to happen aside from that. He's succeeded. He seems like he's going to be in power a few more years. But this also means that trying to rise through the party leadership is a crazy idea. On the Democrat side, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has defeated one of the Democrats in the minority leadership. And of course, on the Republican side, Dave Bratt threw out Eric Cantor out of the Republican Party and of elected politics, although he was in the majority leadership of a party that kept winning congressional elections. So younger politicians who are trying to rise through the leadership, who are trying to look successful and conformist to the powers in the party, that's not such a smart idea anymore. But nobody has yet found a way through technology and popular persuasion to establish an influence in politics and to bypass the rigid structures of leadership in Congress. Hopefully it will happen that way because, as we have said, it doesn't look like there's any way to get out of the governorship in the states and into national politics. Except I'm going to write you, before you can do any of that, you have to figure out what you want to do. And right now, whether it's the governorship, nobody has an idea of what they want to do. On economic policy, it's a desert. And maybe something will develop after Trump, whether he loses in 2020 or is replaced in 2024. Because right now, the two polls in the Republican Party regarding Trump, there's one poll, which is pure Trump collaborationist, where whatever Trump wakes up and types into Twitter that day, you just go, yeah, that's right. It doesn't have to make sense. You don't have to understand it. You just pretend to support it. And on the other hand, there's kind of a bitter anti-Trumpism where whatever happens, this isn't real conservatism. This isn't real Republicanism. This isn't really what I signed up for. And it's really a cover for a distorted version of Reagan nostalgia. And those are the two polls. But both of those are ultimately self-defeating approaches because Trump's going to be wrong a lot of this. And he's a bad person. And on the other hand, 1980 is never, ever coming back. What exactly does it look like? I mean, Tom Cotton's about the only person I've seen who's actually been able to say, okay, listen, we can't go back to 1980. But at the same time, maybe there's something to learn from Trump. Not to imitate Trump, but to learn from this experience. But I don't want to put my faith in this guy. I mean, what happens if he gets run over by a truck tomorrow? We need more people to say, okay, what can we learn from our fellow citizens? Why are they unsatisfied? And I don't mean like just white working class people in Bucks County. What can we learn about Hispanic Americans in Queens? you got to listen to both of them, because I suspect there's actually quite a bit in common between those two voters. But it, before you can start talking at people, you need to start listening to people. 
that's kind of one of the underrated elements of Reagan, that before he had a political career, he listened to a lot of working class and middle class Americans who were not standard issue Republicans. And he figured out what they were thinking, what the bounds of the possible were, what were their ambitions, what were they willing to accept, what were their gripes. The listening preceded the talking. And ever since Bush left, the Republican Party has been, how can we talk at people in such a way that they will acquiesce to the things we know they don't already want? That's the mistake. Before you can tell people what they should want, you have to figure out what they do want. Now, maybe what they want is something they shouldn't get. But you can't have an intelligent opinion on that until you actually listen to them. Yeah. As bad as the political corruption is on the Republican side, the intellectual impotence on the conservative side is in some ways even worse because these people are even more principled and therefore even less willing to figure out how the hell did they lose an entire party. That's not going to be changed easily and it will take people who think, you know what, Trump's a con man, but he talked about real things. The people who voted for him cannot be as bad as Trump. You have got to be able to figure out something that those people want, and in some way they're already organized, having voted for him and still supporting him. So you're not starting with nothing, but try and take them seriously. These people are not there for you to maneuver around at election time, and then you get to do whatever you want in Washington, or indeed, as the Republican Party proves today, do nothing you're going to have to deal with what really scares them and what really excites them and give them something reasonable in return for their loyalty. That's the lesson of the hatred of the times. We have hatred because we don't have any loyalty on either side in any way. It's going to be success that comes hard and as you put it, it takes a lot of hard work to master democratic politics because you have to actually respect the people who vote. And that's something that's really, really hard to do in our times. Ideology is a poor replacement for respect. Twitter mobs or outrage about social justice issue, even a poorer substitute, because all of these things leave the majority of the American people behind as though they didn't even matter. This is a really bad situation. Before we even get to questions of how we master policy, there are questions about how we even address the people and how we conceive of democracy in a way that lets the people consent to government in an intelligent way. Well, Pete, Thanks for joining me. We've had as comprehensive a conversation as we can about trends we've noticed in politics and in political commentary on both the left and the right. And as usual, we are deeply dissatisfied. Let's do this again when we find some new subject that exercises us. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. All the best.